everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. And we have a huge show for you this week. It is the week of Barbenheimer. Greta Gerwig's Barbie and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer have opened on the same day. It is the biggest opening weekend in Hollywood history, or at least this year. And both films are quite spectacular and quite interesting. And there's a lot to unpack in both of them. I'm going to talk to Josh and Sherry Flanders, Book and Film Globe contributors about Barbie. We have a Barbie and Ken on the cast together. And I'm going to talk to chief film critic Stephen Garrett about Oppenheimer a little bit later. But first, some sadder news from Hollywood. The strike, the WGA and the SAG strike are still going on. In fact, they're extending and we may not be seeing big releases for a while. We are joined this week by strike correspondent Rob Kuttner joining us from Hollywood, California, or at least Los Angeles, California, where he lives and is on the pickets. And I'll be right back to talk to Rob about the strike after this musical interlude. I was hoping we weren't going to have to do another segment on striking in Hollywood, but unfortunately, it looks like the strike will go on for a long time, and now the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, has been joined by the Screen Actors Guild and AFTRA. The the actors are now uh, striking as well, and our strike correspondent, our striking contributor, Rob Kuttner, is back to talk to me about uh, developments in the uh, Hollywood strike. Hello, Rob. Hey, great to be back to talk about the strike. Yeah, right. Uh, someday we're going to get you back to talking about what you, what you really like talking about, which is, you know, people wearing tights. <laughs> ballet. Yeah, you love ballet. So, uh, all right. So what has changed? You, you're on the picket still. You're still walking the line uh, in, in the heat of the summer now. What has changed now that the actors have joined the, I wouldn't say a celebration, it's the opposite of a celebration, the uh, the labor effort? You know, so these things don't happen right away, but I think the the dynamics are that, first of all, like the numbers, the writers are, uh, the, sorry, the actors, there's 160,000 versus the 12,000 versus the Writers Guild. So huge numbers, but more importantly, it actually does shut down production with the writers, there were some things that were still being produced, some things that were not covered by the guild, all kinds of different little... I mean, most productions have been shut down, but a lot of squishy things are getting through or, or being worked on in secret. The actors can't actually show up and film stuff. And even worse for them, they can't promote stuff. In fact, the theory is that uh, so the actors extended their talks an extra two weeks, and now the theory was it was just to get them on the press junkets to promote Oppenheimer and Barbie in the summer movies. So now they can't do that. So that's it's starting to sort of like at least we hope, like an actual kind of complete shutdown. Right. Where, whereas, uh, you know, I also like, let's face it, you know, the a- actors, I mean, most of, most of the people on strike for the screen actors guild are, you know, completely obscure day players who no one has ever heard of, but there are you know, famous and glamorous names. Now I mean, there were some actors who are also writers who are popping up on the picket lines, but now it's, it's kind of expanded. Right. Yeah, so you'll you'll start seeing some more famous people, and a little bit of this is trickling into social media. I don't know; it's hard for me to see what the general public is seeing, but you're you're starting to see even some of those day players are just like sort of beloved guest characters in various shows that were very successful. Showing they're showing their numbers, like this is how little I was. I'm actually starting to get from these things, and I can't make a living on this. And I think that helps. And then the famous people, 
even like a little bit of things they say, like, I think people will definitely, for some reason, pay more attention to that than to us troglodytes. Right. Where like they would say, like, I appeared on an episode of something and something and I, I have received uh, $400 in residuals in the last. Well, I was like a regular, you know, I was a guest. I was a constant, you know, side character on this thing that you loved and watched and watched 10 times. And I'm not seeing any money from it, even though it's like jumping from Netflix to whatever to whatever. It's still being shown. Yeah, I've seen those. I've seen those numbers, too. And they're quite small. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm like, I can I can win or lose the, that much on a, any given poker hand on any any given day. You know, it's like we're t- we're not talking about thousands of dollars. We're talking literally about, you know, three digit paydays for a lot of work and, you know, work that uh, the streamers and the studios are still making uh, money hand over fist from. Right, right. And, the, you know, of course, as I mentioned, like the problem is that they don't want to release their viewership numbers because they've been lying about them to Wall Street, frankly, <laughs> to the investors. But that's how you would calculate what they're owed. So they it used to be that there was a whole transparency system of like, you know, the ratings and then the viewership and that sort of thing in the old school. And you could just calculate, we get this percentage, you know, every time you sell it again and show it again. And now there's, they're hiding the numbers, basically. I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, is this, I don't feel like the entertainment industry can collapse, right? I mean, is it even possible that this is going to lead to some kind of like massive implosion of the studio system and of the streaming system? I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I think that they're going to, if the past has been an indication, I think the studios are going to kind of keep trying to limp forward with what they've had. Like, you know, Netflix has all this foreign content, for example, you can already sort of see they're trying to make moves, like they're moving some of the streamer stuff into broadcasts, like Miss Marvel and Disney Plus. They're putting that on ABC. I mean, these are kind of like trying to patch up the, the sinking lifeboat move. So I think the studios are trying to trying to make it look like it's continuing as normal. I don't know if it'll collapse or it may just sort of like idle for a while, but it, it's just hard to know like what shape this this could take. And then of course, like the earnings reports are starting to come back for these places, and a lot of them are not great. So I wonder if that will provide. An, additional amount of pressure. The, the final thing um, from the inside of things is that uh, I think at a certain point it's coming up pretty soon due to contractual legal stuff. Uh, the studios who've made these, like in some cases, very expensive deals with like big writer, producer, show owner people, they'll have the legal right to basically cancel those deals because a strike is considered something a factor you're allowed to do that. In. And that will actually, that will save them a lot of money in the sort of perverse calculus of Hollywood right now and it may but it also might provide sort of an off-ramp to like okay well we saved we saved a couple of billion there so maybe we can figure out a deal now so it might provide you mean like the deals they have with like Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes I mean those those, they're those people are making successful shows maybe not them but maybe some people who are just like slightly slightly below that sort of like complete like home run hitter things you know they've made they've invested in a lot of different people who have different levels of accomplishment that are maybe not quite Murphy and Rhimes level but pretty good and they're expensive because there was a big like arms race, you know, especially with Netflix spending all this money it didn't have and them trying to keep up with these, these really huge deals. So um, I think if they can offload some of those, they'll get their tax write-offs and they can also feel like they have some breathing room. That's a theory anyway. I got no skin in that game. Like it's not really that important. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I am vested in, in seeing um, the uh, strike end so I can uh, return to my regularly scheduled program of uh, – endless media consumption and also so i can continue to have my 
very quixotic dream of someday seeing uh, something that I have written or collaborated on made into uh, filmed entertainment. You know, that would be nice. And that's not happening uh, even remotely while the strike is going on. But I mean, I guess the one other issue I wanted to talk to you about, this is something that Fran Drescher, the SAG president and former television nanny, brought up in her speech, her very dramatic and well-publicized speech that she gave. Did you see that when they put the, her speech to the Twin Peaks music? I know, I know. Oh, you got to find that on Twitter. That's, that's, that's it's so great. It's deeply moving in, in a very weird way. Uh, but, you know, she was talking about, she was just appalled at uh, SAG's, uh, I mean, at the studio's um, revelation that they are basically uh, having actors sign contracts that are turning their likenesses over mm-hmm. to, to, you know, so they can just kind of use these sort of CGI recreations of their faces ad infinitum without having to pay them anything forever. Yeah, they're basically like they're these background and guest performers and extras. They're they're when they're paying like half days work to scan their whole body and face. And apparently, there's anecdotal things coming out about it actually happening. It's already been happening. But, um, and then yeah, like you said, they have full right to use it as much as they want forever with no compensation. And they they want to. They love it. They they love stealing uh, people's identities. I mean, when I this is a long time ago now, but I wrote this novel called Nevermind the Pollocks like 20 years ago oh, yeah, on the main. Yeah. I gave you, you read it. And my, you know, the main character's name is my name. And uh, we sold it uh, we, to Warner Brothers uh, Pictures. And Warner, there is a clause in the contract that perhaps my management should, could, should have caught, but didn't, that gave uh, Warner Brothers the rights to all versions of my name, fictional and non-fictional, forever. Uh, and so when I sold the memoir uh, to them uh, that we tried to make into a movie, they were like, well, uh, you, can't, you, can't, you can't shop it around. We already own you. And so, you know, it took lawyers years to uh, three years to untangle that mess. And by that time, my career had ended in Hollywood. No one cared anymore. But I, what I'm saying, I mean, that's not a strike related issue, but they, they will, if they can, steal your soul, is what I'm saying here. Yeah, it's like seriously already in Black Mirror territory, I think. Yeah, well, there's a whole episode of Black Mirror about big name actors. I mean, actors like Salma Hayek and Annie Murphy and Kate Blanchett turning over their likenesses to Netflix or Streamberry, as it's called in the show, and allowing them to use it, the AI to use it however they want. The big question we have is like how that episode got through, considering Netflix's role in all this. What do they care? It's just more publicity for them, right? Yeah, that's true. And it is a great episode, and it is it is shocking Really shocking, actually, how close it is hewing to reality. And, uh, you know, I, I find the strike, you know, very dramatic. It, it, it's, it's a great story to sort of watch play out. Although you know, I don't feel like it's going to it's going to enter like, um, you know, Pinkerton breaking knees territory. I don't, but I did see a photo of how one of the studios has been like cutting the foliage away where the picketers are walking up and down. So they have to be in more direct, direct sun. Yes. Everything gets dissected. Yeah, endlessly. So yes, Universal NBC, which is in the San Fernando Valley, which is like five to ten degrees hotter than hell. Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> right. Especially right now, um, the place where they the side where they pick it, there are these trees, and uh, they were providing some shade. And the, the picketer showed up one day and found them and all been pruned. And and people point out trees. Not only trees are never pruned in the summer, especially these no. particular ones, but some. So we have a lot of time on our hands. And one of us, uh, uh, a guy named Dan Signer, is a friend of mine, a comedy writer went back and found like the Google Maps images that showed that thing the past three years and the past like five years. And there's never been a pruning before. So yeah. sudden interest in botany from NBC Universal, very suspicious. These fat cats and bastards are going to get what's coming to them. Uh, real quick, have you have you met 
any uh, fun um, right, uh, actors while you've been on the pickets the last few days? Yes. Uh, just yesterday, um, I met, it's not someone huge, but it was sort of huge for my family. Um, I met this cool guy named, uh, this great guy named Adam Shapiro um, on that show, Never Have I Ever, uh, sure. Mindy Kalin uh, high school show, which is a great show. Um, he plays the sort of cringy, uh, overwoke uh, history teacher. And uh, my daughter is a big fan of that. So um, I met him and he was super, he was super nice. He's also, um, he also runs this uh, business called Shappy's Pretzels. Oh yeah. 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 I get my sister Shappy's Pretzels for her birthday. She lives in LA. Right. So he's got a whole like thing going on. So he's just this very cool guy and we had a great talk and, and he even went to the same summer camp as my wife. So, you know, you know, these kind of things are, are, are nice. Like if we're going to have a strike, at least, it's nice to have these sort of encounters, but did he bring you pretzels? Oh yeah, he always he always brings the pretzels. His van was like right next. Oh, to you got to strike where Shappy's pretzels are. Yes, that's 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 the only reason I still am even just just pretzel, I'm just pretzel driven at this point. <laughs> I, I mean, hey, look, you got there's something's got to get you out there, and let's face it, you've got nothing better to do. Right? How else am I going to get wheat and and salt together in one place? Almost impossible. All right. Well, Rob, uh, I, I would like to say that this is the last time. Um, I'm going to have you on to talk about the strike. Hopefully it, it, it um, this will resolve around Labor Day. We, the last time we talk about this, it can be sort of a wrap up, but uh, you never know. You never know. There could be a big, uh, big lump, lump of coal in your stocking for Hanukkah. <laughs> Good luck out there, my union brother. Thanks. Hope to not talk to you about this again. Yeah. Rob Cutner. Thanks a lot. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. You can find me under the lights, diamonds under my eyes. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday and so is tomorrow and every day from now until forever. You guys ever think about dying? When my heart breaks. Some things have been happening that might be related. When my world changed. Cold shower Ooh. falling off my roof. Ah! And my heels are on the ground. <gasps> Black feet! What do I have to do? You have to go to the real world. You can go back to your regular life, or you can know the truth about the universe. The choice is now yours. The first one. The high heel. You have to want to know. Okay? Do it again. Wow. This is the real world. <laughs> What's going on? Why are these men looking at me? Yeah, they're also staring at me. Barbie in the real world. That's impossible. If this got out, this could mean extremely weird things for our world. This would be the most anticipated movie of the summer has arrived. I'm talking about Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie, which opened last week as we're talking, and I have seen it, and so has Josh Flanders, who wrote the review for us, and so has Sherry Flanders, who wrote a kind of preview of a uh, Barbie uh, for us a couple of weeks ago, and we've all seen it. The Flanders, Flanders is, is our, our own Barbie and Ken, and they are here today to talk to me uh, about Greta Gerwig's Barbie. Hello, guys. Hello. Hi, Neil. So, Barbie, 
this is a surprisingly um, controversial and deep movie uh, for uh, an adaptation of a Mattel toy, I would say. I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack with this movie. I mean, it, it's like a it's a feminist polemic. It's also a, a sort of an absurdist comedy a la the Lego movie. And uh, it's a lot of other things as well. And, you know, Josh, you wrote about it for us. And, uh, you know, I you wrote about it sort of from the point of view of a Ken. I mean, I saw it in a theater where I was one of the, I was the only unaccompanied um, straight man. <laughs> there were lots of, there were lots of gay guys and there were sort of supportive boyfriends and spouses, but I sat, I was sitting there on my own sandwiched between a large group of ladies and a large group of gay men who were just chuckling nonstop. Yeah, it, it was a sea of pink where we saw it, um, mostly, as I wrote, influencer Barbies who were, um, you know, very self-referential and taking pictures and being beautiful and standing around, you know. Um, it was a very fabulous screening. Yeah. I mean, that's fun and all, but it does kind of go against the point of view of the movie, which, uh, you know, is, is in some ways, even though Margot Robbie plays Barbie, in some ways is very anti-glamour and anti-influencer and anti-image, right? The whole point is that Barbie learns to sort of shed her uh, glamour gal, superficial glamour gal image, and she acquires uh, a lot of depth. Well, I would say that it's like, I think Greta Gerwig was really excellent in her approach to this movie because Barbie itself, I mean, is ultimately just a doll, just for fun, right? Um, For kids. And over the years, like the specter of what Barbie is has, there's all this baggage has been forced upon Barbie. So there was no way for a filmmaker to come to this material, to come to Barbie and just do a fun, you know, kind of romp that had no political basis because that is the nature of what Barbie is, which is even if you're just a doll for little girls, little girls are going to have so much baggage placed upon that fun thing, which happens to a lot of women's things. It's like, we can't just have something that's fun and frothy without it being like taken over by uh, the patriarchy, um, you know, and then having to dissect it and analyze it and this and that. So I think she had to really, and did a good job of kind of balancing the specter of Barbie's just fun and fashion and good times. And also, and then let's unpack what the the baggage that Barbie has to carry around in the trunk of her little Barbie car. Fair enough. So I will say this. I found the movie's treatment of men a little odd. <laughs> I will say that. You know, Ryan Gosling as Ken, I mean, that that's a performance for the ages, right? I mean, he is, he is hilarious and he imbues this weird guy with a lot of depth and a lot of layers. And he, and he has a really great uh, banger of a Mark Ronson song. Uh, right, right at the end of the movie, really, it's like in the last fifteen minutes that the the real sort of Busby Berkeley show-stopping musical number busts out, uh, and because this isn't really a musical, yeah, there's an opening song and all that, but it's like really not. It's a comedy, not a musical. But in general, like as a guy, I was uh, I don't have a lot to relate to when it comes to the the politics of the Barbie doll or um, you know sort of dismantling the patriarchy but i did kind of find it a little off-putting i will admit that the men were some of the more well-meaning dolts but they were definitely all dolts oh completely yeah and you know we were watching trailers for upcoming movies whether it's the marvels or whatever and 
every main character is a woman and the bad guys are women. And so I think, you know, historically, right, we've seen so many movies where the women are underwritten and the women are just kind of two dimensional. And uh, how many comedies did we watch, uh, you know, growing up where it was like there were three types of women. There was like the, you know, bitch girlfriend. There was like the shrew woman. And then there was like the mommy woman, you know, and that was it. You were one of those three. Um, and so I think this was pretty two-dimensional and the women started out kind of two-dimensional and they were the ones I think that got character development. I'm going to say though, that the difference is, I mean, those, yes, movies were extremely sexist back in the day, uh, being, you know, 20 minutes ago and and onward. But I think a lot of that was just almost uh, internalized and, you know, just omission. Whereas, I mean, this, I mean, there is, Greta Gerwig is too smart to like, you know, accidentally, make a hundred male characters like just jaw-droppingly stupid i mean they were they were so stupid <laughs> that, that it, it defied belief you know there wasn't a, even the sort of smart, america ferrara sort of smart supportive husband was you know his the ally was portrayed as as a complete dipshit well i would say that's a hundred percent intentional and i i get why she did it because i mean first of all when you're addressing the material that is Barbie. I mean, what's your first image of Barbie? Bimbo, right? And so in the world where Barbie is bimbo, then Ken, who is part of the Barbie cinematic universe, is a himbo. Um, And so, you know, it's like bimbo, himbo, they match. Like, that's what's happening there. And, um, you know, I thought she did a really great job of giving, actually, Ken really great character development which is just as Barbie moved from stereotypical Barbie, which she was dubbed in the movie, to fully well-rounded woman, Ken also went from himbo, who is only defined through the love of Barbie's gaze, to, hey, maybe I should, like, go out and find my own identity. And so it became this really interesting commentary, too, on kind of um, stereotypical, you know, cisgender, heterosexual relationships and sometimes how they can become toxic um, for women and for men. Just what you would expect. Just what you expect from a Barbie movie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly <laughs> what you expected when you walked in there. <laughs> you know, I just, uh, what were we joking about uh, on uh, on social media, uh, Sherry? We were talking about uh, a, a a gritty remake oh, of yeah. Strawberry Shortcake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm waiting for the Greta Gerwig treatment of, uh, or, or maybe it would be Wes Anderson doing like a GI Joe movie, mm. right? <laughs> He's so um, impressed, <laughs> you know, because uh, you know, I think I think Lego did it right, right? That was a blast, and those Lego movies are just absolutely wonderful for kids and especially for adults. GI Joe has its movies though, <laughs> right? And they're terrible. They're all uh, completely unwatchable. <laughs> and I'm the biggest GI Joe fan. Um, I couldn't wait for that, and I still haven't seen the new Snake Eyes movie because it looks horrible. Yeah, and, those know, are bad. The, really, the best you know, the best adaptation of GI Joe was the uh, were, were the cartoons when we were kids. Yes, yeah, the, the, the cartoons those, were beautiful. Yeah, those were a lot of fun. Yeah, but I was thinking, like you know, like so, but this isn't like a this isn't a gritty Barbie. I mean, this the, the thing is that the colors are are beautiful and pink, and the sort of the fake settings in Barbie Land are lots of fun. And very imaginative, um, you know the the scene where we're early on where Ken, you know, rushes into the water with his surfboard and oh. <laughs> so good. Bon- bonks into a bonks into a concrete wave is is extremely f- good physical comedy. And there are there are other uh, lots of moments like like that as well. Um, so I mean, they're all kind of idiots living living in this fantasy land. And it reminded me of I, I know uh, Gerwig has talked about this about Jacques Tati. 
and uh, you know that's those those sort of like um comedies of the 50s and 60s that were extremely stylized and like took place on what looked like uh you know a, a theatrical set as opposed to a movie set and Wes, Wes Anderson just did that in Asteroid City as well so there, there's some kind of vogue about that right now Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just love the saturated color so much. I mean, I, I just love a filmmaker who's not afraid to use color. Um, but I think also it was just for those of us who are uh, big Barbie fans, that was just mimicking the way that little girls play with Barbies. So I think also the intentional lack of depth. If you were a child playing make-believe, you're only getting so far. And so then Barbie's evolution into being more of a human also kind of matched the evolution of the, what's the little girl's name? I cannot remember her name. Well, um, that's a problem. You know, when, <laughs> well, I'm, no, I'm terrible at names of actors in movies, so I'm not. Oh, the not, not the ca- but I'm just saying like that character and her, I mean, her mother, you know, the, the, it wasn't, it was more of an idea than a movie, you know, exactly. if that makes sense. And, Gloria was the mother and Sasha was yeah, the Yeah, America Ferrer yeah. is the mom and then Sasha's the little girl. Right. Um, and so, but it mirrors the way that when you are a child, there comes a certain age where you're like, I can't play with dolls anymore. I am now grown up. I must enter the grown up world and, you know, I can't be frivolous and fun. So, I mean, that was the, the you know, I, I don't think that that was the wrong arc for the movie to take. I mean, that's that's what toys are about. I mean, I don't think there is a wrong arc. For, there was a, I don't feel like the movie took a wrong arc. I think it did exactly what it wanted to do. Um, you, you can't, you know, down to the very hilarious last line, uh, which I won't reveal oh, so here, good. but I, that, that no, no so great. I mean, on, other than some, you know, I love the song and there were some bits of physical comedy that I like. There were only a couple of jokes, you know, written jokes that made me laugh out loud. One was some, um, one of the uh, Mattel executives was delivered sort of just an off the cuff line about, a podcast uh, performed by two wise old trees. <laughs> right, right. Like, what the hell? That, that came out literally out of nowhere. And then the last line of the movie just it really sticks it. I, I have uh, some complicated feelings about this movie. I do feel like it's um, it's portrayal of male culture is a little reductive, a little mean, um, and, and and a little unfair to men. Yeah, I'm gonna say you guys have it coming. I guess I I don't I don't feel like I had it coming from a, a Barbie m- movie necessarily. You know, I, I um, you know, there's nothing particularly wrong about drinking beer, um, and and liking cars. I think there's women who who have those interests as well. And I think that I think she intentionally set it up, you know, as a dichotomy, right? I mean, here's the Barbie world where women literally do everything, you know, they are president and they, you know, are construction workers, et cetera. Um, And so I think when they get to the real world, you know, she really doubled down on the sort of men running and doing everything. And, you know, and and it was pretty, you know, I think it was, it it accomplished what it was trying to do. And, you know, it was funny. And uh, the movie's not so long that, you know, that you get exhausted by it. They keep coming back, I think, to, the main characters and their journey. And so, um, you know, if anything, I think the sort of mother and daughter characters were almost just kind of throwaways. Like they were there to deliver two empowered speeches. And then why are they driving back to Barbie land? And why is the CEO coming back to Barbie land? And a lot of that sort of second half story just felt unfinished or 
incomplete to me and just I got the mom and daughter stuff the CEO stuff I think is probably the most of where it fell off the rails especially in the second half it's like they're chasing them into Barbie land but then all of the they um, don't really care they're not they're 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 not evil they're just these kind of neutral figures they have no purpose and and the whole wrap-up of the plot takes place with all the other characters and then they're just there (laughs) yeah agreed so yes it's not a perfect movie but it is engendering uh, engendering more discussion, <laughs> more discussion than I ever thought would it be possible from a Barbie movie. Really, it's it's, it's cre- it has created more debate and more. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's a divisive film, although I have seen a lot of conservative types on the social media who who despise it. I, I think it mirrors like the existence of Barbie. Like Barbie's just a doll, but Barbie has has um, engendered so much debate over the years and still does. And I mean, like that ball, right. doll is old, um, you know? And so I think even like that impassioned, uh, you know, speech in the middle of the movie by the mom, for me and for all the women, you know, in the audience, we like clapped after that speech because that is the essential contradiction of what it means to be a woman. And I mean, it's so rarely acknowledged in a film um, that it, it really hit emotionally. I mean, it's just like, there is no perfect way to be a woman. It's like if if you're 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 too pretty or you're not pretty enough and you know you're too fat you're too skinny whatever it is there's no you know you're too ambitious you're too much of a mother there's no way to be perfect and it's so frustrating and that is why this movie couldn't not have that in it it couldn't be simplistic because being a woman can't be simplistic being a man can't be simplistic either I'm gonna yeah but you guys got a million movies about that right. Rambo. Rambo is a complex Sometimes we have feelings that we can't express, Sherry. You're just Ken. (laughs) I don't don't know if you you knew that about us or not. Anyway. uh, I'm I'm learning. Sherry Flanders, Josh Flanders, Barbie and Ken, thank you so much for uh, joining us this week and uh, talking to me about uh, Barbie I don't really have a closer. You guys, you guys got You guys got a capper for me on this segment. I'm just, I'm just going to say thanks, Ken. Thank you, Barbie. (laughs) We had a moment where it looked like the chain reaction from an atomic device might never stop. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice. This is a national emergency. Detonator's charged. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. This is a matter of life and death. But I can perform this miracle. Hey. Seven. Six, five, four, three. Truman needs to know what's next. Two. What's next? One. The second half of our Barbenheimer doubleheader kicks off right now. We're going to talk about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, an epic, grand statement, a historical movie about the creation of the atomic bomb. This is an important film, and boy, does it know it. 
Stephen Garrett, an important <laughs> film critic, is here and now. Boy, do I know it. Boy, do I know it. Do you ever. And, uh, <laughs> and you, you've seen Oppenheimer not once, but twice in the last week. That's six hours. Twice. I know. I was hedging my bets a month ago. You know, I got paranoid. Am I going to make the press screening? Is it going to be nonsense? Is there going to be shenanigans? I'm going to buy a ticket to a public screening. But then I got onto a press screening, and I still had this ticket to, like, a midnight show on Thursday. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get out at 3 in the morning. And I was like, nah, might as well. I'll go. Maybe I'll check out the first hour. And I stayed for all three hours because it was just as enthralling and and briskly paced as it was the first time. And and actually, I, I having seen and digested the film, and I saw it with a friend of mine who is like a part-time physicist, if you can even be that, or if you can imagine that. So he knew all these guys, and he was like, oh, there's so many Easter eggs. And he was explaining it. So it was actually quite uh, illuminating to see it the second time. You went, I'm sure the people around you were, were thrilled. Maybe they were. I don't know. I, would, I, I, would, I wouldn't have minded um, being having a physicist next to me instead of, well, I sat next to my wife, but other than that, it was like a bunch of, it was a, it was a bunch of gate mouth, you know, Christopher Nolan fanboys who were just like, Hey, it's that guy. <laughs> and I, I agree with you. I mean, this is a, this is a, a great film, a legendary film, a classic film, you know, a, one of a kind, you know, historical work of art. Uh, there's no question about that. I will say as you and I were discussing before we began, the recording, you know, the, the last hour, you, you know, they, they, they blow up the bomb and that, and that scene really delivers, I think, especially on IMAX where I saw it. Cause it's both kind of more than you expect and, and less. And uh, it really, yeah. it really, yeah. it really delivers. The tensions build great. And then after that, it's about an hour of like a courtroom drama starring Robert Downey Jr. I'm not, I'm not kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, and also him being like, it's kind of, he's kind of suddenly goes into kind of like minor league, you know, Salieri mode, you know, where he's like, you just wanted to be famous. You know, I, ah, you know, like this guy has such genius envy, right? Like through the whole movie, that's his, that's his story. That's his arc. I didn't expect it. You know, I didn't expect it. And that was, and it was extremely well told and extremely well, extremely well acted by Robert Downey Jr. I thought. And yeah. Oh, very much doing some of his, his, his greatest work. But I was, I was like, really though, this is a movie about, you know, the consequences of the atomic age and the men, mostly men who, uh, who created it, you know, and Cillian Murphy plays J. Robert Oppenheimer. And, you know, it's weird to think that he kind of gets overshadowed a little bit by Robert Downey Jr. Um, but he, he certainly delivers a, he delivers a, just a really uh, fantastic performance as well. He does, and and I actually felt like you know even Robert Downey Jr. for his kind of nefarious ways, you 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 see the story through his eyes to a certain extent. You understand and sympathize with him, or certainly I did. That you know he's really living in in the real world and in real politics, whereas Oppenheimer is stepping from a complete world of theory into you know this world where oh my god, actually my theories don't completely work the way I thought they would. This is really exciting and amazing and terrifying. And he has all the benefits of celebrity, which Robert Downey Jr.'s character doesn't have. Um, and, you know, and then, but there, then there are some other, um, you know, there's some definitely some, there are a lot of guest stars, I guess, you, you, if you put it. You know, Jason Clark, it, it plays a, a, a government interrogator, and he's, he's quite excellent and creepy. Emily Blunt uh, is, is really good as uh, Oppenheimer's wife. You know, she Great. really, like, gives yeah. a nuanced and, and sympathetic performance of, of, of a woman who 
um, definitely gets the short end of the stick. Well, I mean, everyone does. Like, every woman in this movie gets the short end of the stick. They are bitter and long-suffering and, are, you know, make no qualms about hiding it, you know? And as well they shouldn't. I mean, they had absolute reason to just be so bitter about everything that was going on around them and being mistreated and, you know, kind of mal- not maligned, but just, like, you know, not taken seriously, even when you can see how brilliant they are. Frankly, every person in this movie is is brilliant on a certain level. Like, didn't you get that sense that, like, these were high-functioning adults who really were going after big things. There was a lot of, there's a lot of stake for all these people, you know, uh, from Albert Einstein on down, right? The fate of the world, the, f- the future of humanity hung in the balance uh, uh, on their every decision, you know, and, and none of us ever, I've never had to face anything bigger than, I'm like, geez, am I going to get COVID if I go to the movies? You know, it's like, <laughs> if, I, if I get stoned tonight, am I going to be able to work tomorrow? You know, it's kind of like, those are the those are the life and death situations I, I face. Whereas these people are like, if we don't create a weapon that can destroy humanity, Hitler will win. Right, right. And that was the easiest decision they had to make. Well, yeah, but then there's also, oh, there's a non-zero chance we might ignite the atmosphere and set the world on fire, too. But let's press a button and take our chances, you know? Right, and but then there's also, so all that science is in there, and it's extremely well-explained and, and, and well-delineated and well-dramatized. But then there's also the Red Scare going on, you know? And they all, right. and I think the movie does an excellent job of sort of, you know, the first movie in a long time that's really sort of um, gotten across that vibe of paranoia that really suffused the early... Uh, days of the cold war and that's all throughout the movie especially because nolan as he is wont to do plays with the timeline and so we're dealing with some scenes in 1952 some scenes in 1948 some scenes in the 1930s then you're in the 1940s you know it goes it goes around and around yeah absolutely but you know i, I think the most thrilling thing for me is that this is a guy who really is is staking claim to the the space that you know, people like david lean used to have where they had big idea cinema done in a cinematic way, which is to say nonverbal, emotional, you know, visceral, um, you know, hitting you with sound and image in a way that feels, you know, exciting and terrifying and is trusting you to be intelligent enough to stay with it and to keep up with it, despite the fact that, you know, the way that Nolan's cutting this, there are three different narratives going on in three different time periods you know, this movie made almost $100 million on opening weekend. It didn't make as much as Barbie. You wouldn't really expect <laughs> You wouldn't expect it to, though. But the fact that, like, this, you know, this is definitely uh, a movie for grown-ups, you know, made by grown-ups about grown-up things. And, you know, that space has been lacking from cinema, for the most part, for a while. Well, right, but also... Even in saying it's, yes, I, I don't disagree, it's for grown-ups, it's also mainstream. And that's what, for me, is miraculous, that people are responding to this, that it's accessible, despite the fact that, or maybe because of the fact that it's kind of reaching for top-shelf ideas, you know? Everyone loves a World War II movie, is the thing. And that's essentially, <laughs> right? This is a World War II movie. This is like an aspect of World War, World War II that hasn't been covered in the movies, and they did it this time, you know? It's like, yeah, it's not the Battle of Midway, but you know it's it, it, you know they don't show Hiroshima. They they were they, you know they sort of infer it a lot. Right, right, right. Which goes back to that old adage where I think it was Truffaut or one of the New Wave folks said like if you're showing there's no such thing as an anti-war film, right? Because film is inherently stimulating and exciting. And then once you show film on you know war on film, it is pro-war. I mean, it is exciting. You know, and and I think he just didn't want 
to do that. I mean, I guess I've read inferences, you know, from him that he just didn't want to show. He felt it was morally reprehensible to actually show Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I I, I would agree with him, uh, but I do think that the actual atom bomb test in the desert of New Mexico, in the high plains of New Mexico, uh, that was extremely exciting. I mean, that's one of the most exciting films. Extremely. One of the most exciting scenes in film history in the way the, the way it's the Ludwig Göransson score and the, the way he cuts... You know, well, it's not just like focusing on the cuts to different characters, like as they're getting ready to watch it. And then, you know, the different angle, it's, it's, it's a really like, it's just such a, uh, an incredibly, uh, it's a legendary set piece uh, in cinema history, I think. I agree. And, 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 and the, the characters reactions died with that. You know, the characters are just as thrilled by what they've seen as, as much as we are. Right. But then how great is that scene? I would say arguably even better where, you know, after the bombs are dropped and then Oppenheimer has to make a speech in front of all these people who are so thrilled that the bomb worked and ended the war, but Oppenheimer is haunted by, you know, the cost, right? I thought that was lovely and kind of weirdly surreal for Nolan, you know, kind of unnaturally surreal for him to do in a good way. Yeah. And then let, let's be clear, when that's over, it's an hour long black and white courtroom drama <laughs> starring Robert Downey Jr. It is. It is. It was a bit of a... Premature ejaculation, so to speak. And that stuff isn't bad. It's it's all very good. Um, but uh, you know, it I feel like an hour of that after the literal climax of the movie perhaps is it, it's a bit of a pacing problem. Yeah, it could lose maybe ten minutes, and I don't think we would have felt it. There were there were, and you know, and there's some weird stuff like where's the scene where Albert Einstein suddenly appears from behind the taxi? <laughs> I know. I what was he doing there? <laughs> oh look, it's Albert Einstein. Hey, it's a me, Albert Einstein. What is it? It's it's like Tom Conti is Albert Einstein. And you're just like I. I was like, this is the most unforgiving role. Like you were just gonna look ridiculous. Yeah, there's not too much of it. And I will. And I also say, if you have wanted for the last few years to see Florence Pugh naked, this movie also contains a lot of that <laughs> surprising amount. And I'm just like, well, do we need that? I mean, I, I, I didn't like viscerally mind it, but I was like, well, why are we doing this? You know what? I kind of justified it in my own head because I, you know, she, that's where she gets him. She prompts him. I'm sure this is like not true, but she prompts him to read the Sanskrit, you know, where he translates the words into the, the famous, you know, I am death destroyer of, of world. I am become death destroyer of worlds. Right. But, you know, talk about like sex and death intertwined, right? Like that's, that's it in a nutshell. You know, she's on him. Does he paint her like you did one of his French girls? I mean, come on. <laughs> it was an interesting artistic choice is all I'm saying. I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, coming on the heels of the most sexless movie of all time, Barbie, you know, <laughs> a movie of a, 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 whose characters don't have genitals. Um, you know, and then then this, I'm like, oh, well, this was made by a Donor man. Jams. Donor jams, yeah. Yeah, my you know my wife was like, well, 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 you know, Cillian Murphy was naked too. I'm like, okay, <laughs> sure. I don't, think, I don't think his nipple is quite as charged, but uh, you know. So there's that. There's that. Uh, but there's also you know there's just there's a lot packed into this uh, film, and I really kind of feel like it's um you know it's you really have to see it really like of you have to see the entire Barbenheimer double feature. It's kind of amazing to me, Stephen. I got to say, you know, you and I have been you've been covering movies for you know, 70 years or something. And I, I've been, um, you know, I've, I've been since going the dawn of sound uh, yeah. since the dawn of sound. I've been, I've been, I've been going to the movies my whole life and I have never seen such a frenzy 
in all my years over movies like I've seen the last few days. It's kind of astonishing. It is. It's very weird. It's very. What's going on? Pent up demand. I guess I don't know. I, I don't know if you. I don't know if you. I, so at the at the public screen I went to, which was an IMAX, which is you know it was an eleven thirty p.m. screening in New York, and uh, the place was packed. I go into the theater, and they're Barbie. Uh, viewers leaving, but, you know, taking huge group selfies in front of the big Barbie poster in the lobby, right? Big digital, you know, wall. Uh, And then I go into a packed 800-seat movie theater in IMAX near midnight after all the trailers end. There is so much applause. The lights dim, they applaud. The AMC, you know, buy popcorn in the lobby, they applaud. And then that goddamn Nicole Kidman thing comes on, and there's basically a standing ovation. There is such feverish immediate applause for that and then they applaud for the fifth time when the movie actually starts yeah and then there's actually applause at three in the morning i think people are desperate to connect find something meaningful something that makes them engaged excited and maybe even a little thoughtful you know yeah and And, you know and at last you know it's like you're allowed to go to the movies there's no one has any guilt about going anymore (laughs) Like I never stopped. They have to. It's Barbenheimer. Barbenheimer. But it, 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 it's 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 truly one of the strangest uh, cultural phenomenons of my lifetime. And you know, for two movies that you know, your again, your mileage may vary on either of them, but are both like well worth discussing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there's one that's chick flick, and the other is like totally a guy, like a bro movie. The dad, the daddest dad, dad movie that ever dadded. That is the daddest <laughs> movie. Although. <laughs> Not not as bad movie as the preview I saw for Ridley Scott's Napoleon. There you go. I'll be wearing my tri-cornered hat for months. <laughs> I can't I can't wait for that sucker. All right, and we'll and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it then. But for now, Stephen, um, you're on trial for crimes against America. I was just I was a fellow traveler. I was never a card carrying member. I don't even know where my card is. I, I'm I'm I'm, cons- I'm conspiring against you. All right, I will talk to you soon. All right, bye. All right. Thanks, Stephen Garrett. Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer is playing now. See it on as big a screen as possible. Bookmark half your day. It's very long, but it is well worth it. Also, thanks so much to Sherry and Josh Flanders for talking to me about Greta Gerwig's Barbie, a surprisingly deep and unusual examination of the Barbie mythos. Also, now in theaters, that is a huge hit as well. And thanks to Rob Kuttner for coming in to talk about the WGA and SAG strike ongoing. You can see that live happening wherever writers and actors live. Please go support the pickets. Bring them pretzels, bring them donuts, bring them pizza, bring them something healthy to eat too. They like that as well. And they will certainly appreciate it. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and Barbie and Oppenheimer and Barbenheimer, and I will talk to you soon. Original Production.